So we're going to um, read that story, which is from Judges chapter 17. Partly so you think you realise that I didn't make it up. <laughs> but also to listen out for that key line, which I put up at the beginning, and to think about what it tells us about what can fill the void if we let it. Okay, so it's uh, Judges chapter 17, and Joe's going to read that for us. Judges chapter 17. Now a man named Micah, from the hill country of Ephraim, said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I had that silver with me, I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord, for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took two hundred shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith, who made them into the image and the idol, and they were put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some idols, and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, Where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said. I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, Live with me and be my father and priest. I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So a Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. Joe. So there was no king, and that meant there was a void. And in this chapter, there's two things which come into the void. One is superstition, and and the other is icons. And as we were saying before, superstition is really a substitute for trust because it's trying to control things. People say, I don't want to tempt fate by walking under that ladder. Whatever fate is, I don't think it can be tempted, and I don't think walking under a ladder will make the slightest bit of difference. But however irrational it seems, people still have the mindset that they want to try and control events by, um, by being superstitious. And this is a particularly powerful chapter for us because there's a nugget of religious acceptability in it. She says, I'm going to consecrate this money to the Lord and then goes to do the superstitious stuff. So this kind of superstition is wrapped up in a religious wrapping, and it almost just passes you by, but it is still um, superstition. And so we have to be careful that we don't create our own superstitions. Burning the incense, saying the mantra, attending the break of bread every Sunday, using the right Bible version, If they become controlling and are just done out of ritual or routine, 
then they become superstitions. They're not the actual object of the exercise. And because they're wrapped up in a religious wrapping, then they can just quietly just slip in without you even noticing. But we've got to be careful. Because we know God and the Lord Jesus are with us, but I think if we're honest, we all struggle with the lack of physical presence. It'd be a lot easier if you could see Jesus sat there. Boy, would we we'd be on best behavior and every day through your life. Because we don't have the physical presence, it is like there was no king a lot of the time. And because there's that void, superstition, ritual can creep into it because we're trying to control things uh, ourselves. Um, also in this story was the icons. Uh, the making of, of a huge, vast of quantity of silver into a, an image um, as, as a way of controlling events. And that is something which the prophets say a lot about. Actually, in, in our other Old Testament reading, if you'd like to go to Isaiah chapter 40, we have a message about that kind of practice. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse eight, 18. It says, To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. But do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches it out like the heavens out like a canopy, and spreads them out like a tent to live in. In comparing those two vast scales, the tininess of a, a carved offering and the vastness of God, Isaiah is showing the ridiculousness of um, the, that iconography of using images, and it, it's not harmless. It's, it can become pervasive so that the image or the superstition actually replaces God and Lord Jesus in our lives. That the trust is in the process, the ritual, the turning up to church on a Sunday morning, rather than in, in God and Jesus. I don't think it means a ban on religious imagery. And I'm pleased about that because I find religious imagery very helpful. For example... I love the statue of Christ the Redeemer, which stands over Rio de Janeiro. I think it's a really powerful image. I've got a picture in my mind of when the World Cup was in Brazil, and they had all the pundits talking about a match. And in the background, the, the orb of the sun was shining through the Christ the Redeemer statue, and it was absolutely magnificent. I can't remember which match it was, but I can remember seeing that statue. But I suppose the point is, what is it about the statue that I like? Is it the feat of engineering that went into making it? Because it is a feat of engineering, that huge statue standing on the hillside. I might have a belief that if I touched the stone, maybe I'd be healed of my diseases. And that could be something which this image, this, this uh, statue means to me. Well, it's none of those things for me. I love the way it represents this whole city of human life bustling and and carrying on with Jesus' open arms stood on the hillside above it. That picture for me is really powerful. And so 
the imagery is useful because it helps me to understand Jesus a little bit. It gives me an insight and a feeling for who Jesus is. That's the use of religious imagery, and that's where it's, it, it can have a place. But if the image takes the place of God and Jesus, then it's gone wrong. It's filled the void exactly um, as we saw in, in the book of Judges. And that's the real problem of superstition and iconography, is that when our faith is placed in those. Just turn to Colossians and chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So Paul is saying, don't put your faith in objects, traditions, anything that's made by human uh, skill, if you like, because you have Jesus. And in Jesus, God imputed everything um, that he is. So we don't need anything else. It's interesting that Paul uses the phrase that um, in Jesus, God is represented in bodily form. And I think in that, there's an acknowledgement that for humans, it helps to have big things in something that you can just tangible, that's physical, that you can touch and hold. So people didn't really understood, understand God until Jesus walked the face of the earth. It took that living, breathing, human God's son to allow people to understand God to the full. And obviously people had an understanding of God, but the scriptures tell us that the truth of God only was really seen in when Jesus came. And so it's, it's really important for us to have things which are tangible, but our faith has to be in the people, of, of God, persons of God and of Jesus. And we, get, we receive special commendation in the Bible. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, You have not seen him, but you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So if you like, there's a special mention for people like you and me who have never actually seen Jesus. We've not seen the bodily shape of Jesus. What we know of him is from the, from the scriptures and for the testimony of that. And there's a special mention for us because we love Jesus even though we have not seen him. And because he's not physically here, I think it makes Jesus' character stand out all the more. Because he's not defined to us by the cut of his hair or how tall he was or that mole on his cheek. None of that is relevant to us because we just don't know it. All we know about Jesus is his character, his person, the, the kindness and the love and the self-sacrifice that he showed. That's how we know Jesus. And therefore it's that that we trust in, not the image of him. The first song we sang my trust is in the statue of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer? No. My trust is in the King James Version of the Bible? No. What did we sing? 
the name of the Lord. And a name is something which is not physical. But what is the name of the Lord? What does that represent? What does the name of God mean? His character. I am who I am. The God who was and is and will be to come. And the name of Jesus is that God saves. That's why to, to trust in the name of the Lord is actually a really powerful thing. Because it's that character uh, that we're trusted, trusting him. Jesus did give physical pictures, didn't he? He did give people tangible things that they could grasp hold of. He said, think of me as a gate. But we don't go, oh, now I wonder what kind of gate that was. I need to make sure that my house has the particular design of gate that Jesus was talking about. Because that would be stupid. He's saying, I am the gate. Understand that you can come into God's presence through me. He says, think of me like a shepherd. Not that you're going to follow me around the hillside, but I'm the shepherd of your soul. Think of me as a light, he says. But you don't have to try and look the on-off switch because the light is spiritual. Every time Jesus gave us a physical, tangible object to grasp hold of, it was always because of the message, the spiritual message behind it. He said, think of me as bread and think of me as wine that's going to be broken for you so let's do just that we're going to take bread and wine but first of all we're going to sing together here oh my lord i see you face to face here would i touch and handle things unseen here grasp with firmer hand the eternal grace and all my weariness upon thee lean We can be tempted to do this because it's a ritual, it's a routine. And if that's the case, it is getting to be like a superstition. We can see this as the moment where God forgives us, that the physical bread and the physical wine is tied up with the moment of forgiveness. But the Bible says nothing about that. These are simple physical objects which carry incredible power because of the spiritual message that they translate to us and peter's going to give thanks to the bread father it's it's easy for us to put our trust in other things it's easy to let them take bits of our life where they become the thing that we trust in, in in that part of our life or this part of our life and not you in everything. It's easy, as Charles said, even the things that you have given us for them to take on some significance that is beyond the intention. whether by coming here we, we think that something changes as a result of sharing the bread and wine, or whether we are just reminded that you are the one who is the centre of our trust, the one who forgives all the things that we do wrong, the, things when we, the times when we get things out of proportion, 
the times when we forget to trust in you. And that you are the one who is there, always constant. The rock on which we can build and hope. And know with a certainty, not tainted by superstition, that you are our Lord. And that you save. Father, thank you for this bread that reminds us. Reminds us of your forgiveness. Reminds us of the relationship we have in being bound to you. And reminds us of the the duty and care that we share for each other. Lord, help us to rid our lives of the things that take our trust from you and to give to you all that is due to you, honour, power, glory, in Jesus. Amen. Father God, as we meet together today in this room and we look at the table and we have just eaten of the bread and now we look forward to this cup of wine, this royal wine of heaven, Father, we do ask that you will bless it to us, that as we partake of it, it may Help us to reflect, help us to remember what happened on that day so many years ago when you, Lord Jesus, died upon that cross and gave your life for the world. Help us this day, Lord God, to trust in you, to trust in you with our very lives and not to be superstitious in what we do. So, Father, please bless this cup of wine to us, because we ask it through the name of Jesus, our loving Lord. Amen. all need role models. Physical people walking the walk and talking the talk. Of course, you can have good role models, but you can also have bad role models. And Proverbs warns us, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. So you've got to choose your role models wisely because it will impact uh, on you. And bad role models tend to have a bit more success somehow. And it's because, well, the Bible's got a kind of a, a nice phrase about itching ears It's like your ears are itching because you want to hear something which is what you want to hear. And what bad role models do is they scratch that itch and they tell you what you want to hear, even though it might not be good for you. Now, that is not something new. You can go all the way back to the story of Eve and the serpent and the serpent saying to Eve, you could be like God. 
scratching that itch of the ear and making her look to the bad role model. So it's worth thinking when you look up to someone, when you want to emulate them, ask yourself, what is it about them that I'm looking up to? What is it that I'm trying to be like? Are they inspiring me to be kinder, to be more loving, to sacrifice myself more? Then that is a good role model. But if it is something that's scratching that itch, then it's probably a bad thing. A bad role model can lead us to ruin, but a good role model can take us to new heights. And there's like a knock-on effect, a cascade. Paul says, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. And so at the head of this pyramid, there's Jesus and his example. And everyone who's tried to follow him afterwards has tried to follow that example. But often they've been following the person who's just older than them, a generation above I looked up to people when I was growing up. I tried to emulate things that they did. And it's the same process that even though we know Jesus is the pinnacle, we can still see Christ in each other and follow that example. Here's an example that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians, if you want to turn to that, in chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, and verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, that overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the saints. So Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he's using the Macedonian churches as a role model. And saying, you would not believe how generous they were. They had nothing. and Even what they didn't have, they were still giving. And so Paul is role modeling the Corinthians, probably using a bit of leverage to help them to reach new heights in their generosity and their giving by using the role model of the Macedonian churches. So if we get this right... We can help each other, build each other up, and we can each reach new heights that maybe we never thought was possible. There's something that you have to be a little bit careful in this, though, and that is that you don't think that you have to become the person who is your role model. You don't have to be exactly like them. So I have someone who I really is a bit of an idol, someone I really look up to. I love the way he brings the best out of people. I love his charisma. Uh, I love his sense of humor. I just love everything about him. So when I, need, I needed some glasses for work, not for, for vision, but just to be like protection. So I went into, work, into the optician and I said, could I have some glasses like so-and-so? And so they gave me these. And I got these glasses purely because they looked like his. But then he changed his glasses. <laughs> So I had to go the next step further. And I started going around like, like this. I was just walking around just like this. Because deep down I want to be Jürgen Klopp. But if through our role modelling we lose who we are, then it's missed the point. The whole point is that your character can blossom in being and following the way of Christ.
Jesus did not call you to be like a clone, fit into a mold, just like everyone else. He called you to be the best person that you can be, to follow his example, to allow your life to flourish. So don't fit yourself into a mold, because this church needs someone who's the shape of you, not someone else. And don't hide yourself away, because this church needs someone who, like you, who Jesus called out. Jesus did not call you out to become a, a, a template, but to be the best person that you can be. Let your character blossom and flourish by following the example of Jesus and, yes, the role models that you see around us. One more passage from First uh, Timothy, the encouragement that Paul gives to Timothy. First Timothy and chapter 4. And verse 12, Paul says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Paul is saying, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're you. You can't help that. <laughs> but in everything you do, set an example. And I love those, the list that, um, that Paul gives there. Set an example in your speech, in your life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Be a great role model for all the brothers and sisters around you and for the world outside. So in our closing worship, we're going to sing three songs which are an encouragement for us to be the best role models that we can be to each other first of all. But as we get to the final song, it's to the world outside. Through all our different personalities, all our different characters, we pray that the character of Christ will shine through us.